everybody, welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll. With me is my co-host, Bill Hamlet. So we have a great guest today. We actually met Bridge last week at West in San Diego. He was a panelist on one of our key panels, and we wanted to get his thoughts on current events and sort of the strategic look as well. So why don't we get right to our guest, Bill? Okay, yeah, it's uh, my pleasure to introduce Bridge Colby. He is a former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy and Force Development. He was one of the principal authors, if not the principal author, of the 2018 National Defense Strategy. And he's the author of a new book that's just come out titled The Strategy of Denial, uh, and um, which I've been reading, uh, you know, just digesting as fast as I can. It's a great book. Uh, so, so Bridge, welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. Great to have you on the show. Wonderful to be with you, Bill, and, and Ward as well. And thanks for the, the kind. Uh, you know, I'm always I'm always selling, so so <laughs> appreciate it. So yeah. So the the conversation that Ward just mentioned. You know, we we, we had you at West, uh, and you were uh, in a conversation that that I really appreciated because I'm a, a person who's constantly looking for um, for consensus, uh, particularly across the aisles, right? Uh, and when somebody who, uh, you know, worked for uh, a Republican administration has a conversation with, in this case, it was Representative Luria, who's a Democrat from Virginia, who is a navalist as well. And it was moderated by Admiral Moran, who's on our board of directors, the former uh, deputy CNO. Um, I, it was just a great conversation about strategy, about uh, force development, about kind of where the Navy and the sea services need to go. Um, so your book is primarily focused on a strategy uh, for how the United States and its allies can deal with China in the, in the coming decades. Uh, give us the 30,000 foot perspective, if you would. Sure, Bill, thanks. And great to be on with your listeners. That's a really an audience I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to talk to because actually one of the things with the book is obviously it's a defense book, but I've actually been doing a lot more talking and sort of promoting the book with with a kind of generalist and even even a sort of a popular audience and less with the, the real professionals and obviously they're well represented among your listeners. Uh, I mean, it's a defense book. It's not a China book. Uh, not that you said that, but I mean, sometimes people put me in that in that box. But the idea is, look, and I think this is on the less remarkable statement in defense expert audiences. We have more potential threats out there than we have resources on our own largely to deal with it. And that's not really the world that existed in say 1999 or even 2007 or something, you know, we had a two war military, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that's not the world we're living in anymore. You, know, you got China, of course, but Russia, uh, you got Iran, North Korea, jihadi terrorism, even Cuba and Venezuela, then this could go on. And as, as I think this audience will know, there's a scarcity of power, right? I mean, we're 20% of global GDP, while China itself is 20% of global GDP. And there's obviously a lot of war weariness with good reason in the American populace. So, so what this book is an attempt to do and kind of really building, I think of it as almost like the platonic version to me, at least of the 2018 National Defense Strategy. It's not a book about the strategy you're making it, but it's the, the logic kind of carried forward um, is, how, you know, what's our defense strategy in that context in a world of, as the economists say, scarce resources. And so in that, in that, um, in that context, uh, uh, you know, I really tried to build out what our defense strategy should be. And a defense strategy is something particular. And I actually, it hasn't really been done that much in the last generation. Uh, there's been a lot of grand strategery, if you will. Robert Kagan, Richard Haas, Joe Nye. 
And then there are a lot of uh, military analyses by the FFRDCs, think tanks, you know, how do we win the Taiwan fight? How do we win the Europe fight? How do we win the Iran fight? But a defense strategy is the connection of the political and the military, and it should be closely attuned and rational and sort of Clausewitzian in its, in its, in its, in its design and its essence and what it, it entails and how it's built out. And that's, that's really the logic that I, that I took. In that, in that world, I said, well, what's the basic interest of the American people? It's to our security, prosperity, and liberty. And what's the primary threat? It's that somebody would have so much power they could force us to undermine those, those goods. Um, and if you look at the world, most of global GDP is increasingly concentrated in Asia. It's going to be over 50%. And China's by far the biggest other entity in the international system state. And that's 20% probably growing. So our top priority has got to be deny China regional hegemony in Asia, which I think is its pretty increasingly clearly is its goal. Other interests are significant, but secondary or even tertiary in relation. If that's the, but they, you know, because they're secondary doesn't mean you abandon them, but we have to have, our strategy has to account for that, the scarcity of our power, not sort of wish it away. And in that context, I really focus on China because it's by far the most challenging and most consequential. It's basically built around a political strategy of an anti-hegemonic coalition, essentially a balancing coalition in Asia. And what's needed to keep that together. And when you get down to the nuts and bolts, that's a military strategy of denial because military force is, in, is really decisive. Sometimes I, I worry that the military world actually underestimates its centrality. The M, if you don't get it right, will dominate the rest of the, D, the dime. And so we've got to get that right. Happy to go into that. But that really requires that we have a defense of our allies, and I include Taiwan for defense planning purposes, along the first island chain. And that basically, for a variety of reasons, Taiwan's China's best target. If we can defend Taiwan, and particularly to a standard of denial, then we'll probably be good to go because the anti-hegemonic coalition will survive instead of being picked apart by China. And denial is basically, it's a relative standard, but it basically means whatever is necessary to defeat China's ability to subordinate that targeted ally. So enough to keep them going. So if you've got a weak ally, it gives up easily. It's a high standard. If you've got a stouty ally, I mean, what we're seeing in some sense from Ukraine, it's actually less demanding because they need less. You know, the Finns might need less than, I don't know, pick your softer, you know, I don't know, I'm part Irish, so I could say Irish, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, with all due respect to my, to my, uh, you know, Irish, Irish brethren. Um, so I think that's the standard, but of course, that's a low political and sort of strategic standard, but it's a very high standard militarily because of all the advantages China has, size, proximity, focus, et cetera. So that's what we need to do. And, and my view is that's got to be the leading mission of the armed forces, the joint forces in, in, in general. Um, and everything else needs to be put in, in orient. The, the other two core missions, so you know, the, the end of the book is a kind of the outlines of how I would move the national defense strategy forward from 2018. I mean, I sort of building on, but it's sort of intensified given how th things have generally gotten worse and we haven't really rectify the situation well enough is um, the three core missions are the defense of, our, of the first island chain allies, and particularly Taiwan scenario. If you get that, you're, you're going to be able to defend Japan and Philippines and Korea is a little different, but basically in Australia. Second is a nuclear deterrent that can prevent anybody from coercing us. So we're probably going to have to increase the nuclear deterrent as far as I can say, tell. And then a low cost counterterrorism uh, operation going forward, giving all the, the nut jobs out there. Uh, and then um, if the American people want to have spend a lot more, then the next mission would be a Europe mission. But we should first resource Taiwan before we resource 
uh, Europe, and I'm very worried about that right now. And the reason we can do that is because Europe is less important, Russia is less powerful, and the, uh, our European allies are a lot stronger. And in fact, we're seeing that right now. We're seeing that they're able, they're, they're able and willing to step up. So that's the way is basically a burden sharing model and a, sort of a division of labor model also in the Middle East and South Asia while we focus on, on, on Westpac. So that's the model. Obviously, I think it has tremendous implications for the naval services, certainly the Navy, but also the Marine Corps, also the Air Force, you know, are sort of like the natural forces uh, that are elements, of the armed forces that are that, that get priority. Um, but, you know, with that, that's sort of the 30,000 30, foot foot uh, foot level. Uh, but, but welcome your thoughts and questions. Yeah, uh, two things uh, struck me as you were speaking there. The, it reminds me, you know, Ward and I were both uh, Cold War warriors. And at, at that time, uh, a lot of the conversation was around, hey, if you train to the highest threat level, right, if you train for the Soviet problem, uh, you can deal with all the lesser uh, included problems. Uh, you know, so counterinsurgency, you can deal with uh, you know, the, the Vietnams, although that didn't go particularly well for us. Right. But um, but if you, you know, you, you, you aim at the your defense force, um, uh, you know, force posture at the highest possible threat, you know, then then you'll be able to deal with other other lesser included threats. It also struck me what you just said about um, uh, Europe being maybe less important because you know, Russia is not as strong as China, but also our, our allies there are much stronger relative. Uh, and, and so, and we're seeing that, right? We're seeing that with the situation in Ukraine right now, that our, our allies are stepping up um, rather than fracturing, which I think a lot of people just a week or so ago expected, you know, that the Germans would kind of go, ah, oh, well, we really need the Russian gas and, you know, this isn't that important, but in, 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 uh, really they've reacted in, in the opposite direction, which has been very heartening to see. Um, so uh, let me just go back one, uh, I want to stay at the strategic level for, for another minute. Um, you, you talked about China as a regional hegemon. And, and that that is their goal, that's their objective, is to you know, be the, the most powerful nation in Asia, if not in the world, by, by mid-century. Why do Americans have to worry about that? So for the average taxpayer who may, may not pay attention all that much to what's happening you know, across the world, why is it a huge concern that China wants to be the most powerful nation in Asia? Sure. Let me let me just say one one thing uh, just about the I, I wouldn't say that it's a lesser included. I would say you take risk on the secondary missions and the tertiary missions. So you may you may have some redundancy for lesser included. But but I agree with you. You do you do train for the high end mission. And then at the end of the day, you kind of you're going to kind of have to make do or that's what I always stress a low cost counterterrorism force. You, you have a high low mix, ideally, in which case and high low mix has multiple meanings. But in this context, I mean, your overall force design is the bulk of it is focused on the high end fight, but you have a lower cost element that's specifically designed for the lower cost mission in order to partially reduce the wear and tear and cost on that on that higher part of the force. And that's that's one of the problems maybe with things, you know, Seventh Fleet, for instance, is, is that is that it's we, we've been using forces designed for one thing like F-35s flying over the Middle East rather than having, say, you know, uh, uh, gosh, I forgot, you know, the, essentially the low the lower cost you know, even prop-driven aircraft over the Middle East. But um, why should Americans care? This is something I've been giving a lot of thought to, actually, in the last six months since I've uh, and I've written a little bit about it. I wrote an article in, in American Compass, uh, people are interested. Um, I think it's very real, and I think it actually, actually, in some sense, American voters 
sort of regular people rather than the, the blob actually intuited more more readily, which is the enormous impact that China is already having on our life. And of course, the industrialization and inflation right now is partially due to the, our, our reliance on Chinese goods and so forth. But really, the, the danger is that China becomes so powerful that it's able to enforce its will on us and undermine our our secure prosperity, right? Because they're going to reorient the whole geoeconomic system to their benefit. I mean, we've been you know, dollar, the best, you know, tech companies, universities, you know, you, you name your other facets of the American economy. Those are not God given and those are not permanent. And the Chinese are deliberately seeking to, to take those and make, make themselves the commanding heights of the world economy. We shouldn't dilute ourselves. That's going to diminish our national life, both in terms of our prosperity, because we're all going to be, you know, most people are working for somebody we're all working for somebody indirectly or not. And that, you know, if, if the guy, if the team with a lot of money and power is ultimately in Beijing and not in Washington or Silicon Valley or pick your place or your state capital, they're going to have immense influence. And they're going to be able to say, well, the Americans are going to be lower down the value chain. You know, uh, uh, you know, they're not going to have all the, they're not going to set the, the regulations that everyone's going to get to follow, the, the privacy protections that, that you expect on your know, social media app or whatever, as troubling as they are in America, they'd be a lot worse if they were if it were set by China. And then that's going to lead to diminutions on our freedom. And we already see China's already doing that to us. We're the strongest country in the world. Look at what they're doing to Australia. That's the point I make, is they are demanding changes to Australian law, including restrictions on us on free speech in Australia. And that's that's the future. I mean, I don't think we need to speculate because because Australia asked for an independent investigation of the origins of COVID. I mean, you know, yeah. so that's the future we have to worry about. The, the, the wrinkle here is this is going to be settled in Asia because Asia's worth is the decisive theater. It's where the, the wealth is. So if we wait until they're already powerful enough and directly imposing, it's too late. That's the problem. Yeah, that's a, a great point. Uh, and. Uh, I remember having a conversation. I, I was I was a fly on the wall for the conversation uh, about ten years ago. Admiral Willard was the PACOM commander, and the um, uh, then uh, foreign minister, who was also later the prime minister of, of Australia, were talking about the, the China problem and, and how the the the, um, the political influence was very unnerving to Australia's uh, leaders. And that was ten years ago, right? And, and I saw in the New York Times this morning a great story about how the war in Ukraine is being portrayed in China and, and the, the, the total control over the narrative. Uh, and, and so Russia's narrative about what's happening in Ukraine going after Nazis, which is absurd, right? That's what most Chinese are hearing today about what's happening in, in Ukraine. So I, I agree with you, you know, the, the influence on U.S. liberty, on information flows, on the way we live our lives is uh, it's under threat. You know, if the, if the Chinese, you know, become the most powerful nation, not just in Asia, but, but globally. Well, the, th the thing that strikes me immediately, I think of Top Gun Maverick and how they took the Taiwanese flag off the back of his flight jacket because of Chinese protesting. You know, and, and so um, I think the problem, Bridge, is even more insidious than than something that's like dead on arrival because it's so obnoxiously a restriction on freedom. This is where capitalism can be used against us because they are a shareholder in an entertainment company. They get a vote. Right. It's just economics. It's not even um, 
really a political opinion necessarily at some level. Right. And they're like, you want this movie? You want to do that final scene? Exactly. Do this, right? And so the, right. the, the agnostic, nihilistic Hollywood execs are like, <laughs> okay, we're not even going to push back. You know, yeah. we got, a, a, you know, we got a team in the field, the, the producer, you know, Joe Kornacki's like, I, you know, I, I need, I need money, you know, cause we got a rural film and so forth and so on. It's just a pragmatic reality. Well, I mean, the thing, the thing there, Ward is right now they're asking about the, the Taiwan flag, right. Or asking, demanding, um, or they're doing that thing to John Cena, the UFC guy, you know, an actor. But what they're doing in Australia is a taste of what's to come because they have the economic position over, eight, over in Australia that we really need to worry about. And Australia has us to fall back on. We don't have anyone else to fall back on. What Australia, what China's actually demanding. So, Bill, to your point, in the years after Prime Minister Rudd was president, or Prime Minister, the Australian system reacted to an incredible amount of Chinese influence in the system. They had a much less regulated system than we did in terms of money and foreign influence. They, they changed legislation to ban foreign donations, all these kinds of things that we, we take for granted now. That's what China is actually demanding they roll back. Wow. And, and, and there are even demands on, uh, uh, I think, on uh, restrictions on, on Australians criticizing China. Like, you know, who knows what the rules are exactly that they're demanding. But, I mean, that's that's what we're looking at, where, where Australia is very dependent on, on exports to the Chinese market. And okay, well, you know, ten years ago, I, I was I just got angry at you about Tibet, but now it's going to be you, you said something critical about China in general, and then you know, I mean, if China's the what if China's the most powerful entity in the world and you can't criticize it, do you have freedom? Yeah, certainly not, certainly not. So um, let's let's go a little bit now to uh, uh, you know some of the things that you. Talk about a lot in your book, and, and particularly starting with alliances and that defensive perimeter. Uh, you know, so proceedings readers, Naval Institute members are very familiar with First Island Chain, Second Island Chain. You know, we've had Admiral Scott Swift write some pieces about that. Uh, Tom Mankin in the in the um, um, latest American Sea Power article, uh, you know, talked about a, a defensive strategy for uh, for dealing with China, First Island Chain, Second Island Chain inside outside forces those kinds of things um but but talk about you know you mentioned salami slicing that the chinese like to do uh and you talk a lot about alliances and partners in the region uh, so why is it so important so vital that we have very strong alliances uh, uh to, to to counter this chinese problem so i do talk about alliances but i think i talk about them in a different way than americans have been conditioned particularly over the last generation i mean i talk about them genuinely as in their how and why and in what way are they in, in our national interest so you we talked about I, I proceed from a perception of what's in america's self-interest and because asia is the decisive theater and because we're so far away and we're not strong enough to stand up to china directly in their region we need others right and they need us right so japan india of course taiwan australia they don't want to be dominated by china so the basic foundation of the way I think about alliances is mutual self-interest. So I think of alliances, I mean, a lot of the rhetoric of American life in the last generation in particular has been this kind of romantic, idealistic vision of alliances, which I don't think is helpful, realistic. It's not helpful to us, not helpful to them. It's not realistic, it's not sustainable. I mean, when the, frankly, when the president talks about sacred alliances, I mean, the sacred obligation is to the American people. That to me is the sacred obligation. 
our alliances are, I think of, I analogize them a little bit to like an, a, a private business partnership with, you know, like a law firm or an accounting firm or something that has a private partnership privately held. There is a, there is a personal relationship often in these firms and, and institutions where, you know, they play poker or golf or tennis or whatever. They're running together, bicycling, something like that. But at the end of the day, it's a business partnership. There's everybody's supposed to be pulling their weight and it's an, it's a mutual self-interest thing with personal element on top of it. That's how I think we should think of our alliances, Bill. And in that context, what's it really about? It's about this anti-hegemonic coalition. It's a balancing coalition. This goes back to very tried and true, old school, balancing power, balance of power kind of thinking, which we've fallen out of and that to our detriment. And balance of power thinking, realistic thinking is not un-American to my idea. It's the most American thing possible. First of all, George Washington did it. But second of all, it's the central idea of the American constitutional system is the separation of powers. That's basically what we're talking about. Working, aligning power to check power. Okay, if that's the case, we got to work with those who share that interest. And that's whether they're a democracy. I mean, I don't, I had family who were in Vietnam. I'm sure many people here were in Vietnam or had family in Vietnam, new people in Vietnam. We got to work with Vietnam now because they share our interest and they're willing to do something about it. So that's the basic logic. Um, and then in that context, we have to defend them, not because, you know, this is like people say, oh, you know, we need to defend Taiwan because they're a democracy or what, you know, because they're free people. I, you know, I'm of the view that we are the well-wisher of liber liberty everywhere in the world, but it's for others to mitigate. Defending Taiwan is in our interest, in my view, because we have to sustain this anti-hegemonic coalition. If it falls apart, we will suffer at home in very direct, direct ways. And we've got to defend forward, but we have to do it in a way that's consistent with the cost and risk thresholds of the American people. And that's one point. I mean, that's where I really stress to this audience is nothing sort of angered me more in the Pentagon is that when people say what you're talking about bridge is too hard, denial is too hard. We should do some like horizontal escalation or distant blockade. And I don't think it's going to work for a variety of reasons, but even more, I think it's irresponsible of the defense establishment to get almost $800 billion every year and basically to say, I'm going to put the burden and the cost onto the American people, onto the, the rest of the civilian population, which is saying, you know, we're giving 3%, all of us, even if you're in the military, of our GDP. We should be able to do something that's at a lower level of cost and risk than, than that. It's not going to be easy, but it should be something, and that's where I come out with denial. Denial is something that the American people, I think, if, God forbid, the Chinese make the go decision on Taiwan, and the president, whoever he or she is, they're faced with a decision to go to the American people. It's one thing to say, you know, this is going to cost X, realistically. It's another thing to say this is going to cost 10X and inflation is going to triple or 10X or order of magnitude. The economy is going to tank. And I don't, we're not really sure it's going to work. And so that a lot of the defense debate right now, Bill, I think is really about there's not there's. I think in a lot of ways, we've already won the battle on whether to defend Taiwan. I think that's kind of there. I And that China's the, prior, the priority challenge. The question is, in what way and to what degree? And people like Congressman Mike Gallagher and Congresswoman Luria are very eloquent, and I think in a similar position, on the necessity of having a real denial strategy. And that's important for force planning. It's important for the allocation of resources within the department, the level of resources, what our allies do and don't do. And, and in a sense define a lot of our strategic policy in the world. So uh, from what I just understood you to say is that, you know, DOD gets a lot of money. It's, it's you know, $800 billion plus or minus a year, which is 
that's a lot of expense on the American taxpayer, taxpayer, right? You're not saying, hey, we need 2x uh, to do what we need to do. It just need we need a better strategy. We perhaps need to be buying capabilities that are more directly tied to this strategy of denial, right? And that we need to be doing it in a much greater partnership way or alliance with alliances so that we're sharing that cost across all those like-minded countries in the, in the uh, Indo-Pacific that also have the same national interests or similar overlapping national interests. Yeah, I mean, basically, like, I, I'm, <laughs> honestly, I think it's kind of lame for defense people to sort of say, uh, give me more money as like the yeah. first thing. I mean, it's just, I, I feel like it's, I don't know, I just, I don't like it. It's kind of like, it's our job to make do with, and then if we get to the point where we just can't do what the nation wants, with the resources, okay, sure. But isn't it our job to make as good as good use as possible with the three percent that the nation gives to the defense establishment writ large? Um, and I think that's it, well, exactly what you said. I'm not sure we need that much of a better strategy, Bill. I'm biased, but I think the 2018 NDS we need to implement it in a thoroughgoing way. And it's only to get more extreme the, the longer we wait. And so I think you know before we, and it's not really a, um, it's not real. I don't mean this in a temporal way. But before, in, in a prioritization sense, before we blow up the defense budget, why don't we actually prioritize? You know, why don't we actually build systems within the services that are more suited? And that's what we're trying to do. The force planning construct was get the China fight ready before you worry about the simultaneity issue or anything like that. How much has that really happened? I don't know. I mean, I, I have a lot of confidence. You know, Admiral Lesher, I used to sit next to in the in the in PBR and so program budget review and, and I, you know, Air Force as well, General Alvin and General Brown. So it's not personal, but um, also the other thing, Bill, and I put something on a Twitter thread the other day on this, because I'm getting a, a lot of my Republican colleagues are, oh, we don't need to make these choices, Bridge. We just need to spend more on defense, which, A, again, I think that's a little, it may be, I think it's, we are going to have to spend more on defense, just bottom line. But like, let's try to do a better job before we just blow up, you know, 2x the defense budget is, well, A, uh, that's going to take a while to kick in. B, are we going to spend it on the right stuff? What if we grow the army and station more people in Texas? That's not going to help anything. <laughs> C, are we building the right things within the services? You know, should we be, you know, are we building enough FS, SSNs and heavy bombers? Unfortunately, you know, and then, um, and then is, are the American people going to support it? And are we making a credible argument? Actually, to be, to be candid, I think if I were the American people and I were listening to those people saying blow up the defense budget, that's more likely to get a no. Whereas if they hear what I'm saying, they're like, okay, this guy's actually gonna is trying to be a good steward of our money, or trying to have the defense option be a good steward of our money. That's more likely to give, you know, if you're making an investment, you're more likely to give it to somebody you think is gonna be take your money seriously. So that in a sense, I, I actually think I'm the way I'm talking should lead to more support for a higher defense budget. Yeah. Hey, we have um, what I want to do now is we've got a, a question from one of our audience members about uh, the Trans-Pacific Trans Partnership Agreement. How damaging was the U.S. withdrawal? And then after that, uh, what I'd like to do is pivot a little bit towards what's happening in uh, Russia, Ukraine, and talk about what a lot of people have said, you know, the implications of that on China, Taiwan. Yep. What are the implications of this, you know, quasi-alliance that you see strengthening between uh, China and Russia. So first, the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, question. I'll just be brief on that because I, I don't think my view on TPP or trade is, is meaningful or material to anybody. 
I mean, I think the reality is that a lot of Americans, uh, it seems like the majority of Americans really feel burnt out by the free trade sort of theology and zealotry of the kind of post post Cold War era. And so trade got a bad odor on both sides. And TPP, withdrawing from TPP undoubtedly damaged our position in Asia, no question. But it seems like the American people are okay with that. And <laughs> I think what's going to have to happen is uh, politicians and others who matter with credibility on the trade issue or, or credibility on putting Americans' economic interests first, kind of, rather than the sort of, I mean, whatever you want to call it, Wall Street elite or something like that. It, those people are going to have to buy, they're going to have to make the argument for a, 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 a new trade approach. And I think where we're going to have to get to is geoeconomic area that, that's essentially a block area that, that is balancing China's block. We'll trade across, across those blocks, but we can't afford to be alone against the Chinese market because it's so large. So that's where I think we're going to go. But I, I mean, you know, both 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 candidates in 2016 said they were going to pull out of TPP. So so the underlying problem, it's not that voters are stupid. To the contrary, it's that we were pursuing a policy that lost credibility with the American people. And I mean, I guess to me, like democracy is like listening to people. right? So it's like and I don't mean to suggest that the questioner isn't taking that seriously. But I just I think some foreign policy type like me saying, oh, we need to join TPP. In fact, I did say we should join TPP in 2016. And obviously it didn't matter. So it's like, I, I just, that's kind of my, my view. But when I do talk to the people like that, the politicians and others who are in that, I, I make the case that we're going to have to have geoeconomic scale. So they, they need to deal with that. But I, how we solve that problem is not in, it's not like someone like me. Yeah. It's an interesting point, you know, the, the, the parallel there between a, a defense block because we can't go it alone against China, yeah. particularly for us, you know, on an away game for a home game in their backyard, right? And then economically, because of the power of their of their burgeoning economy, we can't go it alone in competition yep. uh, with their economy either. So that's- There's actually uh, a lot of parallels across the this, this scarcity point. And again, I'm using the, it's not like we have 2%, it's like I just mean the economic sense. This economic world too. I mean, the sanctions, a lot of those, you can't shoot more than once or more than a couple of times. So exactly. It's a similar model where you're pretending like, we're not the world hegemon if we yes. ever were, and we got to deal with that in every respect. So Bill, before we pivot to Ukraine, which I think we need to do, sure. uh, Bridge, and this is a whole different subject, and we're going to probably have to have you back on to talk about procurement reform, right? Yeah. So when you talk about that everybody has a fiduciary responsibility to do right by the taxpayer's investment. Mm -hmm. As you know, better than I do, that's impossible going by the services. You know, they, they very much feel like their, uh, their priorities are axiomatically the best use of taxpayers dollars, you know, and, and right. I think this is ever as it has been since 1947 when the department of defense was created. And when you're mentioning the different priorities, I'm thinking of B-36 versus the USS United States, mm -hmm. you know. And so um, I, I, it, it's, I think where that system works is everybody does their part, including the Hill uh, and the defense industry, along with the requirements officers and everybody in the E-ring uh, to advocate for themselves. And then in, you know, what comes out is the best use of the taxpayers dollars generally. But 
Let's that, not. Well, that's the notion. I, don't think that's true. I, I assume you agree that's not actually what happens. That's no, I, I do. Right. I'm yeah. just, of course not. Um, because right. if well, that I, was true, we wouldn't have certain blue chip programs that are now uh, in the program of record. Uh, so, yes. Well, I, I think mean, this is a topic for topic another day. For I just wanted to say that. I'm a devotee. Robert Comer, who's a brilliant guy in many respects, his book, Coalition Defense for Maritime Strategy, has had a lot of impact on my thinking in the NDS and so forth. But he also wrote another one about Vietnam called Bureaucracy Does Its Thing. Um, I, I, when I would walk to my office, my, in my last time in the Pentagon, I would, I would walk to the, the, my office and I'd pass by these recruiting posters uh, from the revolution. Uh, which reminded me that the Army as a service has been in continuous existence since before the Republic. So, you know, I mean, God forbid the Republic ever, ever falls, there will still, probably still be an Army. So it's kind of like <laughs> the notion that we're, and there was a Navy too, and uh, that we're just going to kind of like, oh, hey, hey, just um, get in line, you know, uh, you know, understand your point. I mean, of course, the revolt of the admirals and Maxwell Taylor and all this stuff. So, so, uh, and forced all jumping out the window and all kinds of stuff. Exactly. Like that, right? So, yeah, I mean, there's no easy solution, but I think we can do better. I, you know, I, I refuse to accept that. And I don't know exactly on procurement exactly what the right answer is. I, but I think we have to align incentives correctly in a way that gets us to a better outcome. And I think that's possible. And then we've done better in the past. Like, in the, you know, Bob Bork likes to talk about the F-100 series. Eisenhower was giving 50% of the, of the budget to the Air Force at that time. So, you know change is possible. I, I, a lot of people are sort of cynics about any kind of change. And I was like, well, I don't know. We've done better in the past. Why can't we try to do that again? Even understanding that we're never going to get perfect efficiency. Obviously, that's that's never going to happen. Yeah. Topic for another day. So uh, as Bill suggested, can we apply your template to the situation in Ukraine to include yeah. NATO and how we might what we are doing, what we could do, because uh, that's what top of mind to uh, all of our viewers. Well, I actually think um, there's a real risk to this to, the, to our national interests and in our and the strategy I'm advocating for in the NDS of 2018 kind of strategy focus on China. But actually, what's happening should be an opportunity. So, a couple things. One, I never I never thought or said or, or advocated in any way that the Russians aren't a threat. In fact, I think they're a threat to NATO, and I talk about this at length in the book. And I've written extensively on the threat that Russia poses to NATO. So, like, the idea of the shift to Asia is not dependent upon good behavior by the Russians, let alone the Iranians. Rather, it's dependent on the fact that the Asia is the primary theater and China the biggest threat. So there's all these people saying, oh, Russia's bad, so we can't wait to rethink our strategy. It's like, no, no, we always, I mean, I always assess that it was, in fact, it might even have made it more possible that Russian aggression was likely. As we shifted, that's not, I mean, that's not like it. That's not a mark against the strategy. That's like something you have to plan for. And in the book, what I emphasize, heavily emphasize, what we were trying to do in the NDS in 2018, I don't think it was carried through as well as, as necessary, was a couple of things. I mean, one is, so, I mean, just to be very clear, and I wrote a piece in Time Magazine a couple of days ago that people might find of interest. It's like, how do we increase prioritization on China while we support Ukraine and Europe? And it's basically, um, Europe is important. Just because it's the secondary theater doesn't mean it's not it's that we abandon it. But we have to fundamentally, at the end of the day, my view is we've got to husband the forces necessary for an effective defense of Taiwan and make sure we withhold them, even if the Russians go first, including against NATO. Now, I'm saying this as a private citizen, whether the president of secretary of defense says that exactly publicly is another thing. Internally, though, that should be very clear. So that's what it means to be the priority theater. Now, what we were trying to do in the NDS in 2018, 
was reduce the, the pain of that choice by building more of the capacity or, or shifting the prioritization to major war so we wouldn't have to choose because we don't have a military, as I say a lot these days, we don't have a military that's large or equipped enough to fight China or Russia along anywhere near concurrent timelines. In fact, we're not even in a good place on the primary fight, which is China. So that's the scarcity I'm grappling with. What do we do now? The solution to this that I've been advocating for years in this book, I harangue the Europeans and others about it all the time, is allies. And the good news is, okay, the Russians are bad guys and they're willing to use force. The Europeans are stepping up. So that's the solution. That's the only solution, credibly. And they're doing that. Now, we got to help them with convening power and leadership, and we've got global assets that they can't match. Yeah, okay, got it. But as long as you take care of the Taiwan fight and make sure, as long as ensuring that we focus adequately on that, then we can do we can do those two things, but the, but it's got to be a lesser role. So I'm very worried by stories out of the NDS and, and new significant new deployments to Europe because of course it's not the army. I don't need to tell this to a Navy audience. It's not the army that's scarce. We have a, an army that's way too big, frankly. And no, I mean, I think the army is important in case there are any army people listening. Uh, I do think the army is important in certain ways: long range fires, logistics, air defense. And in the future scenarios like South Korea and the Philippines in, in East Asia. But what we don't have enough of are SSNs, B2s, B21, munitions, C4, ISR systems, space, cyber stuff, air defense. Air defense is like so limited, right? And our bases are going to get creamed if the Chinese go for them. So that's that's where the scarcity is. But so what I think we should do is, is four things. One, arm the Ukrainians, because actually the Russians, and I'm cautious about people spiking the football on Russia failing in Ukraine. If I had to bet, I'm betting that it's likely that they're able to achieve significant, especially east of Dnieper, just by mass. But they're showing the they're actually demonstrating that they're not 10 foot tall. In fact, the you know, people saying, oh, the Russians are, are failing, often are the same people saying we need to double down in Europe, but actually the, the Russians are showing the limits of their power, right? Okay, A, so if we arm the Ukrainians, B, arm the heck and put as much pressure as needed on the Europeans to keep going the right direction. I mean, the fact that the Germans have gone to 2% is a historic event. It's like the most important thing that's happened. The Poles are going to 3%. I mean, wow. Romania is going to 2.5%. Okay. Sanctions, of course, exactly what I'm not the best person on. And then energy independence on our part to produce funds. And then, and then that we can make that work and then, and then focus on, on, um, on, on, on Asia, which from a defense planning point point of view means means Taiwan. So we get that right, we get the rest right. Um, but I think I think that's I think that should be our strategy going forward. But I'm I'm not convinced it's going to be, unfortunately. Yeah, those are great points. We had Michael Kaufman from CNA on the on the show two days ago, three days ago, and he said the same thing about uh, not spiking the football yet. About well, I learned a lot from Mike on the Russian military. He, he's he's wrong about the fait accompli, but but he's very very good on the Russian military. Yeah, so he, I, he, I mean. He said the euphoria was a little bit premature, <laughs> but but I, I think you make some very good points there about uh, and it you know past presidents, numerous past presidents have all said that uh, NATO needs to step up, that NATO nations need to get to the two percent, uh, and seeing Germany finally commit to two percent of uh, of GDP to defense spending was as you said, I, it's one of the biggest news stories 
probably underreported, but bigger news, biggest news stories in the last week, certainly. Um, so now let's just pivot for a minute. We're, we're running a little low on time here, but uh, to Russia and China, you know, they, they seem very cozy. Some call it an alliance. I don't know that that's, uh, you know, perhaps uh, too strong a word, uh, but there, there seems to be a, a great uh, bon ami between Putin and Xi certainly a similar worldview in perspective of wanting to be, you know, uh, lead, change, change the world, uh, change the, the, the post-World War II, post-Cold War uh, world order that's been led by us and, you know, a liberal international order. Um, where do you think that that relationship is going and, and how, do you, how, does, how does your strategy um, uh, deal with that? So... Again, there are others who are more expert, um, but my read and, and listening to people who know more about it than the relationship than I do or the, or the countries themselves, I, I think that relationship is very solid, and I would not expect it there to be significant daylight. I don't think the, the Chinese are going to pay taxes, in a sense, on, for the Russians out of the kindness of their heart. They're going to try to reduce their threat surface politically and diplomatically, but I don't think, I mean, if anything, it's going to drive them closer together because they both the source of their effectively an alliance is uh, their shared opposition to the United States and Western hegemony or whatever you want to call it, um, or their perception of it. Uh, and, and I mean, if anything, this, this actually kind of strengthens it. And I don't, I mean, there was this idea that the Chinese were surprised by the, and I, I mean, even if they were, which I don't think they were, I don't think they're, I mean, Xi Jinping is not like morally objecting to what, uh, what Putin is doing, I don't think. And, and now no. it appears that they they actually um, did know about the invasion from the news reporting I've seen. So, um, and and in a sense, it's strengthening China's position because now Russia really has no other alternatives, uh, at least for some time. And that gives them more leverage in the relationship. Um, and there's a potential, I hope not, but there's a potential for the US to get distracted, which is good for China. So actually to me, my strategy becomes even more necessary when they're so closely aligned because they, they pose a multi-theater problem on different sides of Eurasia, right? So my whole, this, the, like the core point is scarcity of power to deal with multi-theater and multi, you know, adversary challenges, right? And, you know, if Russia and China were on very different planets kind of geopolitically and we had beef with both of them, uh, you know, you could, you could argue, hey, Okay, the Chinese are going to go, but the Russians aren't going to go because they don't want to lose, they don't want to lose the French or the Germans or whatever. Well, now they're like really in cahoots. So now they have an incentive to make life as difficult as possible for us. So that means a lot of people are using this argument to say, "Oh, you you have to double down in Europe because they're aligned." It's like, no, 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 no. Actually, this just increases the prioritization on Asia because the Chinese might decide to go. You know, because they planned it together, they've optimized, and maybe they even like want to do a favor to the other guy, right? So that's actually all the more reason for my strategy to be implemented, or the strategy I'm advocating, I should say. So that's how I um, I, I look at it. And I, I wrote a piece actually in the Japanese press uh, earlier this week, right after the Germans saying, "You guys need to follow suit. There's really no excuse because we really, we really need to get the the, the band sort of together, uh, or not band together, but just get people." You know, armed up and everything uh, as quickly as quickly as possible. So, I, I to me, it actually just reinforces the need for my strategy. Strategy, man. We're 
to that point about Japan, where are they in terms of uh, GDP spending on, on defense? Still way too low. They, they, they talk, but they haven't moved. They're still like basically at about 1%, which is completely unacceptable. I mean, we, completely unacceptable. Yeah, especially so, given, given what they face. You know, they complain to us all the time about the threat from China. I mean, so almost it's like audacious. So, yeah, that needs to change like years ago. So, like, yeah. I mean, in my view, they should triple their defense budget. Because if Taiwan falls, they're going to have to do 10x. Yeah. Amen. Amen to that. Well, we are unfortunately out of time. It's been great to talk to you. Bridge Colby, the author of The Strategy of Denial, American Defense in an Age of Great Power Conflict. It is a fresh book out from Yale University Press. Uh, I'm working through it. It is a terrific book. I highly recommend it to anybody who's trying to wrap their head around how we deal with China. How do we deal with uh, threats in, in this day and age? Uh, for the decade to come. So, uh, Bridge, great to have you on the show. Thanks again. And thanks again for being at West. Uh, that was a really great conversation that you had out there. Thank you, Bill. Thank I really appreciate it. Great to be at West, uh, an honor. And then uh, and delighted to join you guys today, you, you and Ward. So thanks for the invitation. All right. That wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Uh, the podcast and, and lots of other content from the Naval Institute are brought to you by the members of the Institute. So if you're not a member, please join www.usni.org slash join. Um, and we will catch you next week. Until then, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.